It's December 28, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, more of our favorite conversations from this year, including a discussion about assistance with end of life. So there's the anticipatory grief, so that's the grief that comes before the death event. If it's a a death that is sudden, then there's all these decisions that have to be made. A conversation with a Northwest Arkansas end-of-life doula, plus the origins and uncertain future of national monuments. Without a vote, they can just issue a proclamation and create a new protected space where national parks are created by Congress through a vote. We talk with Mackenzie Long about her book, This Contested Land. And the life and career of a pioneering financial journalist. As a, uh, as a Washington reporter, he was highly expert in the intersection of finance and politics. First, though, NPR with this news. Support for KUAF comes from Adventure Subaru, featuring fuel-friendly, symmetrical all-wheel drive vehicles and service in the Nelms tradition. Adventure's eco-friendly dealership is located off Interstate 49 and exit 65 at Stephen Carr Memorial Boulevard in Fayetteville. AdventureSubaru.com. Fayetteville Public Television offers classes in video production plus accessibility to equipment and broadcast channels to share your videos with a viewing audience. Serving all residents of Washington and Benton County, Fayetteville Public Television can help people turn video ideas into reality. FAYpublic.tv for more information. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, the 28th of December, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. Again today, we're rolling out a few more of our favorite conversations from this year. And we'll begin today with Rob Wells and his book about William Kiplinger. The Kiplinger Publishing Company began creating financial forecasting and advice newsletters more than a century ago. For more than 90 of those years, Kiplinger Publishing was led by a Kiplinger, most notably founder William Kiplinger. A new book, written by former University of Arkansas journalism professor Rob Wells, delves into the life and career of William Kiplinger. The book, The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridges Washington and Wall Street, delivers the story of a journalist who routinely had the ears of important leaders and himself was a visionary when it came to communicating with his readers. Rob Wells is now an associate professor at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland, where he teaches data reporting and is the Ph.D. studies director. He was back in Fayetteville in November to discuss his book at the Fayetteville Public Library, and while here, he visited with us, too. He told us the book was a project that found him after he was asked to write an encyclopedia entry about William Kiplinger. And I was looking around to get some background information about this man who had died in 1967, you Mm -hmm. know. Called up one of my friends at uh, the Kiplinger magazine and said, hey, who in the library has, like, some files on the old man? And they go, well, they closed the library, but you can talk to the grandson. He just retired, and he'll probably talk to you, right? So I give uh, Knight Kiplinger a call, and an hour and a half later— (laughs) <laughs> we hit it off. Mm-hmm. We had worked for the same company. We worked for Dow Jones. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was a veteran journalist, and he had um, employed some of my former editors, and so we knew a lot of people in common. Uh, an hour and a half later, he sent to my house in Fayetteville an unpublished manuscript that his grandfather wrote that was his autobiography, oh the unpublished uh, manuscript of the company history, 
uh, two books that his dad wrote, and a bunch of newspaper clippings. Wow. So when that arrived by Federal Express, I went down to the uh, to the journalism department, locked the door in the copy machine, and uh, scanned everything for a couple hours, and then went right back to FedEx and sent it back to him. And we had this – he was sending me material through the pandemic by FedEx to help me do this research. And, and then I went out to his house and, and scanned a bunch of documents. So at that point when I saw an unpublished manuscript by a major – person in business journalism, I knew I had uh, uh, an article and probably a book. William Kiplinger uh, began his newsletter before the stock market crash, right? That's right, 1923. Willard Kiplinger began it in 1923. He was an Associated Press journalist prior to that. Did something like this exist before him? Yes, there was uh, a political newsletter called the Whaley Eaton Newsletter in Washington. It was very good. Mm-hmm. And it started in about 1918 or so forth. But um, Kiplinger came along to, to sort of perfect that and actually eclipsed it because it was much – the writing was so much better and, and, the, and the reporting was excellent. What made the writing better? Kiplinger was a gifted writer. He was just extremely good um, at the craft of writing. He loved it. And he had this um, – very strong opinion that the reader's time was precious. Mm. At the time in, in the 20s, he was seeing an opportunity to serve the reading public that was assaulted by information overload in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And so what he wanted to do was to tell people what the news meant. And so he produced a more analytical product. He spent hours ki- getting the week's events down into four pages and they had a reporting staff and they would come in and report things and send him material and he would rewrite everything and had this very crisp sort of vibrant uh, writing structure. It's actually – it was very pleasant to uh, do this research because the writing was good. The title of the book is The Insider. So did he rub shoulders with – the elite and the powerful? Very much so. And this was um, – the insider sort of plays on, on multiple levels. First, as a, uh, as a Washington reporter, he was highly expert in the intersection of finance and politics. Um, when Roosevelt's uh, staff came to Washington, uh, Kiplinger reached out to um, – FDR's chief speechwriter, who was head of this group called the Brain Trust. Mm-hmm. It was a bunch of Columbia University professors who created a lot of the social service programs like the Social Security <laughs> and National Labor Relations Board. And Raymond Moley was the head of this uh, Brain Trust. And Kiplinger needed an insider contact mm-hmm. with, with Moley. And Moley needed to learn how Washington worked because he didn't know. Washington. He was coming from New York. And so there was this two-way dialogue between these two men that I was able to extract by looking at more than 250 letters that were in Moley's um, archives. And so Kiplinger is gaining information about the New Deal from the epicenter of the New Deal. I mean, Ray Moley was – his office, the National Recovery Act – was implemented from his office. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he appointed Hugh Johnson, who ended up 
becoming the the administrator of the National Recovery Act. And every Friday, uh, Willard Kiplinger would sit in Moley's office on a standing appointment, and Moley would tell him everything that was going on so long as he wouldn't be quoted. Wow. And so he had this incredible insight and gained this reputation of of being kind of a, a clairvoyant, <laughs> you know, about about what was happening. But in exchange, you know, Moley got to learn about, about Washington. So the premise of the book is that this journalist was a political actor. He wasn't a partisan. And I, I really carefully researched this to make sure to see if there was any political spin in what he was doing or the advice he was giving. And he was pretty much down the middle he leaned right because he believed in free markets, mm-hmm. but he was fair to the labor, uh, uh, you know, movement. Very fair to the labor movement, in fact. And so here is this journalist who is trying to make the business community accept the New Deal and telling them explicitly that capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, is dead. It failed. The bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, holiday is evidence of that. The new way forward, you need to give the Roosevelt people a chance. The New Deal seems reasonable. You may not like the paperwork, but it's the best option. And you have a social responsibility to take in um, and, and engage with this new regulatory framework. And you may not like it, but you need to do it. And so he was trying to bridge these two worlds of Wall Street and, and Washington and using back channels in the Roosevelt administration to do so. I'm talking with Rob Wells. His new book is The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridged Washington and Wall Street. What kind of readership did the newsletter have when it in those earliest days? So it started off in the 20s, you know, it was around uh, six to 8,000, and then it just blew up after the New Deal um, because it became must-reading for um, businesses around the country. And he began to really expand the readership and it got up around the 40s and, and 400, uh, 40,000 and 50,000 in the 30s. And then towards after World War II, it took off again and ended up um, over 450,000 in the 70s. Did he maintain the same sort of access during the Truman administration or the other presidents that followed? Yes, yes. He, he was really um, – highly respected, and and he played the long game. He would make relationships mostly with the the second and tier, uh, third tier bureaucrats. Mm. So there was an example of a, of a treasury official who was a deputy treasury secretary in the Wilson administration, William McAdoo, and they were – they just hung out and would, would talk about, you know, finance and so forth. By the 30s, McDew goes back to California. He's a U.S. senator. So now he has that contact on the inside, and the, and the senator is writing him like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So he did not necessarily speak to the presidents. He really wasn't interested in the top-level people, but really interested in the second and third-tier people and, and played the long game and had these relationships that went on for decades. The newsletter is a was – is and was well-known, a household sort of term. Was he, did people recognize him? Was he a social being at all? So he, he was kind of an awkward individual, um, a complete workaholic, mm. but um, also very savvy in promoting and creating his own brand, 
which is something that's very modern in journalism. You know, individual reporters are supposed to under some think some you have your substack now and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. yeah, and your and your and your Instagram feed and so forth. Well, he did that with um, you know typewritten correspondence, and he would just randomly send a copy of his newsletter to Roy Rogers. So Roy Rogers would talk about it. Wow. And, they're, and they're telegrams. So like Roy Rogers gets the copy of the newsletter. Thank you very much. You know, I'll try to remember to repay this, uh, to pay this bill, but a comedian is not very reliable. Will Rogers, right? Yes. Not Roy Rogers. Sorry. Yeah. And then um, uh, he did the same thing with, with, with Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, when he was New York governor, because he could see that Roosevelt had the edge uh, coming in and would network. He became very well known because he would freelance write. He wrote a lot for the New York Times and then other magazines. And then he would go out on the rubber chicken circuit. Mm -hmm. We'd go to um, the Rotary Club meetings around the country and speak. And then we'd get on the radio. And so he did a lot to promote himself. And then he became um, a best-selling a book author with a book in in the 40s called Washington is Like That, which really tried to explain to the American public what the new bureaucracy in Washington was all about. So he would condense the in the newsletter. He would condense the week's news, put it in four pages, send it out. Would they do you know? Would they arrive in in people's mailboxes like on Monday? That's the, right. Yeah, yeah. It would arrive on Monday morning, and there was a very vigorous um, correspondence between his readers and. Um, uh, with his readers, and he would use that and mine that for his reporting. So he was doing audience engagement, which is what we do a lot now in, in modern social media and modern digital journalism, to um, to really kind of extract new story ideas and to get levels of detail. Uh, so he had incredible lot uh, audience loyalty. You mentioned that um, you, your research, you could see his writing, of course, from the newsletter, but you also had access to this unpublished autobiography. Yeah. Did he at all ever – because you called him a, politi- a political actor but not a partisan. In this autobiography or anywhere, did he kind of discuss how he walked that tightrope? Was he mindful of it? He was very mindful of it, right? And um, so there was a letter that he wrote to his daughter in the late 50s uh, about her um, decision – on who to vote for in the presidential election. And and it went into a lot, a lot of f- political philosophy and, and talked, uh, you know, about the the structure of the party system and, and, and he talked about the benefits of both. Um, I think he was leaning personally more conservative as time went on. He certainly liked Richard Nixon over John Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was mostly because he was – he, he could see the institutional depth that, you know, they sort of favored that. But there were opportunities that I, I focused on in the 30s where I could see here is an opportunity that he could have kind of tilted the scales and tried to spin something or try to push a personal agenda and the advice he was giving to other people in the, in, in the Roosevelt administration, and he didn't. Mm. He was pretty fair. He died in 1967? Mm-hmm. Was he working up until the day he died? Um, he began to have health problems in the mid-60s, but he was, he was working all the way up to that point. He just really had a deep passion for journalism and for writing. You connected with his grandson 
who also work at the newsletter? Or? Yes, he AM ran the company mm. after his dad uh, stepped aside, after Austin Kiplinger stepped aside, then uh, Knight Kiplinger came in in the 80s and uh, took over the company. Um, a remarkable individual himself, you know, and a very, very good journalist, uh, editor. We had quite a bit, quite a few conversations about the, the scope and the tone of the book. And there were uh, a couple instances where he pretty strongly disagreed with my interpretation of some events, but I backed him up with research. And so he just wanted to make sure that if there's any criticism that he, that it was amply supported. Um, Interestingly, there was a very sensitive family dispute in in the book uh, and involved how um, uh, uh, Willard Kiplinger and uh, and, his, and his son broke off uh, mm. a really bitter argument in in 1948. And, the son who would then take over uh, this was Austin Kiplinger, yeah, yeah. and. Um, and you know some discussion about the the tension between the son and 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 Kiplinger's third wife, mm. and all that went in without any without any hiccup. So um, I was very lucky to to work with a family member who was willing to expose the you know his his company's um, and his family's secrets to me, and um, and I think we got a, a really a decent story out of it. And if you're a journalist writing about a journalist, can you get inspired by your subject? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was very inspired to see that this um, this high-profile financial reporter would really stick to the the basic essence of, of like the AP's reporting, um, uh, you know, goals, and that he uh, he was a he was very much always a, a journalist and then a businessman, you know, and really put the journalism first. Um, he had a, a couple sharp edges to him, but uh, a number of people c- came through there and just thought he was probably the best writer they'd ever encountered in their careers. The name of the book is The Insider, How the Kiplinger Newsletter Bridge, Washington and Wall Street. Rob Wells, great to see you again. Great. Thank you, Kyle, for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right. That conversation with Rob Wells first aired on Ozarks at Large in early November. More of our favorite conversations from this year ahead on today's show. Hi, my name is Jack Travis. I'm a reporter for Ozarks at Large. To all of our listeners across the natural state, have a happy holidays from us at KUAF 91.3. This is Ozarks at Large. There are 133 national monuments in the United States. Some are man-made, but many are protected natural areas, like Bears Ears in Utah. Bears Ears was established by President Obama in 2016. A year later, President Trump ordered a review to reduce the amount of territory protected, though President Biden later restored the original boundaries. The tug-of-war over Bears Ears highlights what can be a confusing realm of protected lands. Mackenzie Long writes about this in the book This Contested Land, the storied past and uncertain future of America's national monuments. She was in Rogers in Fayetteville earlier this year to discuss the book, and I reached her by Zoom before those appearances. She told me then that she was actually in Bears Ears when news broke that President Trump wanted to reduce the land around the monument. I was camping in Bears Ears National Monument with my sister. Um, and I think 
I'm trying to remember if I knew there was something coming. I don't think I did. I think I was just interested in Bears Ears because it had just been created not that long ago. And um, I had gone back to just um, see more of it because I had only seen a very tiny part. And so, yeah, I was in Bears Ears when I learned about the review. And I had one of those moments where I was like, oh, wow, I'm interested in this. And it's actually important. I think so. I think this is worth knowing more about. <laughs> Bears Ears is a monument. I think so many of us, when we hear the word monument, we think of a single object, whether it's man-made like the Washington Monument or perhaps, you know, a formation that might be in the American West. But for this context, what does National Monument, what could it mean? Well, National Monument can be a statue, like the Statue of Liberty is a statue, or I mean, Statue of Liberty is a National Monument. But um, the ones that I'm talking about in this book are natural areas that are very similar to national parks. Um, they, especially the ones I'm talking about, are big. They tend to be big, uh, the ones recently designated. Um, they have a lot of park qualities, park-like qualities like natural beauty and um, fragile ecosystems and things that deserve protection. Um, what makes them different from a park is that they're created in a different way. Uh, under the authority of the Antiquities Act, presidents can designate national monuments without a vote. They can just issue a proclamation and create a new protected space where national parks are created by Congress through a vote. And so in order to reach a vote in Congress, we all know it takes a little while. There's often compromises that take place, and it can also take a really long time to get everyone on board to to create that. And so National monuments, they can be created fast because you don't need to come to consensus. And um, they're also created to protect something uh, a little bit specific. So when one is created, presidents will issue a proclamation and it lists the things in there that they're trying to protect. And that can be a wide range of things. It can be um, a cultural a cultural element like a, a dwelling or a petroglyph site. It can be, um, they can be created to protect biodiversity, to protect migration corridors for animals, um, endangered habitat for endangered animals. Um, so there's all sorts of things that they can be created to protect. And more modern ones like um, President Biden just created one earlier this month outside the Grand Canyon. And that one, I think, is specifically created to um, to honor some of the indigenous tribes that have connections to that place. And they were hoping to protect that land. And so he was able to create a monument specifically because it was important to them to protect. We know about the one you just mentioned, the President Biden uh, designated. We know that President Trump initiated this review of several. We know that President Obama designated several. But this goes back to Franklin Roosevelt. He was the first president to uh, de to designate a national monument, wasn't he? Uh, Theodore Roosevelt. The Theodore, <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Yes, it goes even <laughs> further back. Yes, Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, the Antiquities Act became a law in 1906. And so, and then Theodore Roosevelt uh, created the very first national monument, which was Devil's Tower in Wyoming and in that same year. So it goes back a long time. And the, the interesting thing is they, they've changed over time how, how the monuments that are created look. In the beginning, when Theodore Roosevelt was designating monuments, they were very small with boundaries drawn right around the, the 
um, thing to protect. So Devil's Tower, it was just like a little tiny box right around Devil's Tower itself saying this is a monument. And now I think partly because scientific understanding has grown, they've gotten bigger and bigger. And so now sometimes they're trying to protect full landscapes and full ecosystems because it's hard to protect a watershed if you only are protecting a very small part of it. So sometimes there's um, a lot bigger spaces now. As you mentioned, national parks are created, generally have to be hammered out through some amount of consensus. National Mm -hmm. monuments, not necessarily, which can mean they can be controversial and it can raise the specter, I suppose, for some people in those states that it is land that is being taken off the table for possible what? I know Bears Ear, some people thought, could yield coal or other substantive um, elements underground. Yeah, I think, yeah, Bears Ears, there was maybe the potential for some uranium mines around there. Um, Grand Staircase Escalante, which is also in Utah, is actually um, sits on top of the largest untapped coal field in the country. So um, typically when a monument is created, existing mining rights and grazing rights and water rights remain, but they often will not allow new um, mining leases to happen on the land. And so, yeah, Utah is the prime example of this. When Grand Staircase Escalante was designated by Bill Clinton in 1996 and when Bears Ears was designated in 2016 by Obama, um, a lot of Utah politicians were angry because they felt like the monuments were now restricting the economic development that could happen in their state. Um, And and that's a a fair view, I think, that it does seem like the federal government's coming in and telling people that live there what to do with their own land. Um, And so that's how it often creates controversy, though. But though, even though a president can just unilaterally designate a monument, often I think it only happens after a lot of grassroots Uh, advocacy for these places. There's usually many very passionate locals and groups that really want to protect these places and find them to be very special. And they're the ones championing the National Monument designation. You mentioned that a designation, a National Monument designation can protect landscape, terrain, watersheds. You also write it can protect stories. What do you mean by that? Well, um, The national park system in our country also often tells history. There's an interpretive element where we're trying to explain what happened um, in the past. That's why we have national battlefields and things where we commemorate um, war that happened, civil war, things like that. Um, And so national monuments, they they don't have quite the same interpretive element as national parks. But um, I think it's very important to recognize the history in a lot of these places. And like I said, with the the new Grand Canyon National Monument, the reason that was designated is because of the history, the human history on that land, and that there's numerous indigenous tribes that still, they have a history there, but they also have present day connections to that land. And so when we create monuments um, that have cultural value, we're also protecting those stories and protecting um, the reasons why those places are important to certain people. Um, another new monument that Biden created is Kastner Range outside of El Paso. And um, I believe that the the Hispanic community around there had been trying to get that designated for 
I believe around 50 years, they've been really wanting that to be a place for them and their community and what what that land means to them. And so that's one thing I find really exciting about National Monuments is that we can use them today to protect things that our society today finds important, which is often the stories and including different people in in the wild places in our country. If a president can designate a national monument and then a subsequent president can ask for a review, what what is the status at any time of a national monument? Can it be revoked? Well, that's a really good question. I think that that's a little bit up in the air um, because when Trump initiated the review of national monuments, he then modified three monuments. He he shrank two of them in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, and he also removed some restrictions from a marine monument in the Atlantic. Um, and when he did that, I think there were a lot of legal scholars that were like, wait, can he do that? Can a president alter what a previous president did? Because normally in our government, to change something a president had a previous president had done, Congress is the authority to do that. So definitely the work of a president can be changed, but usually we need Congress to agree that it needs to be changed. And one president can't just write off what another one did. Um, so there's been a lot of lawsuits filed. And when Biden took office, uh, I think he requested a, a stay of some of the lawsuits and just to see what he wanted to do. He ended up reinstating the the three monuments that Trump revised. So he brought them back to their original state. And um, and then I think the state of Utah filed another lawsuit saying that Biden couldn't do that. Um, and that lawsuit, the latest news on that is that it was dismissed. So I think that the courts decided that what Biden did was legal. But I'm not sure if the answer of what Trump did, I don't think that that's fully been answered. So I think there's still some gray area. And um, that's why it's a little bit interesting, because um, some of these things we're still trying to decide how they work. If collectively we aren't as sure about what a national monument means, you know, in, in just the popular thought, does that mean we don't visit them as much? If you go to Zion or Yellowstone or Yosemite, you'll chances are see tens of thousands of people at peak season. For national monuments, the crowds are fewer, I'm guessing. I would say for most of them, yeah. I think all three parks that you mentioned, they're all struggling with how to control the crowds there and still allow people to see those wonderful places. Um, some national monuments, like Grand Staircase, is actually really popular, and they it sees a lot of visitors. But I don't think it reaches the anywhere near the levels that Zion or Yosemite reaches. Um, and most monuments, a lot of them that I visited for this book, they're just like wide open land with nobody there. But they also have less infrastructure. So when you go to Yosemite, there's going to be a lot of trails. There's a lot of wayside exhibits explaining to you what you're looking at. There's tons of maps telling you where to go and short day hikes to do, pullouts to see things with your car. Um, I'm thinking of Basin and Range National Monument in Nevada. I mean, there might be a sign when you drive in there saying you're in a national monument, but in most places there's not. And so there's not there's not trails built up. There's there's not scenic vistas. Um, if you want to explore it, you kind of have to do a lot of research and look at maps and figure things out on your own. So um, some of them can actually feel really remote and really wild. 
I'm guessing that that can also be a challenge for advocacy. I, I imagine if a if a president or a legislative body wanted to take some of, you know, Grand Tetons or Yellowstone away, there would be all sorts of hell raised. But if you don't know much about these national monuments, it may be hard to to develop a protective action. That's true, and I do know that um, that. Some of the advocacy takes that in mind. Um, I spoke to a man, Angel Pena, who was an advocate for Oregon Mountains Desert Peaks in New Mexico. And um, originally, when they started advocating for a monument in that area, um, there's this mountain range right outside Las Cruces that's called the Oregon Mountains. And it's this very beautiful, dramatic skyline. And I believe a senator said, OK, well, we'll we'll help protect the Oregon Mountains, but we don't actually care about any of these other places. And so Angel's job was to bring people out to some of the other mountain ranges because that monument actually protects five different mountain ranges. And he believes that some of those other places are just as special, if not more special than the Oregon Mountains for many different reasons. But they're not as obvious or um, they're, they're just not as um, charismatic, maybe, as the the Oregon Mountains that are you drive into town and you're like, whoa, what are those mountains? And so he would bring politicians and um, business leaders and different members of the community out to um, these other places and show them how great it was. And so they were able to convince um, the president, I think, uh, yeah, that was Obama, I believe. They were able to convince him to designate the whole the whole monument and protect um, a larger area than just the Oregon Mountains. In the book, you, you talk about visiting several national monuments. Most of them are in the West. Uh, there was one in the East. And I'm wondering if there are more national monuments in the West just because, you know, the population is more sparse in Nevada, New Mexico, Utah. Well, when a national monument is created, um, a, it's not like eminent domain. A president's not taking private land and turning it into protected public land. There, he's taking land that's already under federal management, such as Bureau of Land Management land, Forest Service land, um, land, land like that, and um, giving it a new protective status. Um, so it's not really like changing um, hands, I guess you could say, um, but it's just changing the way that it is protected and managed. And so it just, the way our country was, um, settled and developed, there's a lot more open land and Bureau of Land Management land, Forest Service land out in the West. And the East Coast is much more densely populated. There's not as much Forest Service and things like that out in the East. So um, I think that it's just a matter of the West is the places where where those designations can happen. And nothing against, you know, an Eastern seaboard, but there's something about those Western terrains that that evokes, you know, imagination. Yeah, there are very impressive landscapes out there. <laughs> so not picking your favorite, not saying anything like that, but if you could give listeners just one of these national monuments in the West that you visited and you write about in the book, go see, that we might not know about, what's just one suggestion? Again, not saying it's the best or your favorite. Hmm. Um... Man, that's a tough question because I could say that about all of them. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Rio Grande del Norte in northern New Mexico. It's right outside Taos, um, which is like a little ski town you may have heard of. Um, and 
I I had an amazing time there because I got to speak with a lot of people who found that place to be very special to them. And the monument there, you can't, there are some scenic vistas. You can drive and see um, views into the Rio Grande Gorge and see the river below you. And it's really impressive. And at the same time, there's also some wide open land with some little hills and stuff to see that are part of the monument. And um, I think that that place has a lot of interesting history because it, it was important to the Taos Pueblo, the um, Native Americans that live around there. Um, it was important to the Spanish settlers that um, originally lived in that area when uh, they came in. And then it's also important to many people today who think it's very special. A lot of um, anglers, a lot of hunters, a lot of ranchers. And so uh, I think it's a place that is special for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of people have been able to come together and um, all agree that it's a special place. Mackenzie Scott is the author of the book, This Contested Land, The Storied Past and Uncertain Future of America's National Monuments. She was in Fayetteville and Rogers earlier this year to discuss the book. We spoke in March via Zoom. This month's Short Talks from the Hill features Mervyn Jabaraj. As director of the Center for Business and Economic Research in the Sam Walton College of Business, Jabaraj leads a team of researchers who provide applied economic and business research to federal, state, and local government and to businesses in Arkansas. In the podcast, Jebaraj discusses inflation, consumer sentiment, and economic growth in Northwest Arkansas. The center recently released the Northwest Arkansas Region Report, an analysis of the Northwest Arkansas economy. Jebaraj explained what goes into the making of this report. When we compared ourselves to the first set, uh, we were a lot better. So we let's like make this a little harder and try regional comparisons that are bigger than us. Think of Tulsa or Kansas City or Omaha, which is a little further away than those two uh, metro regions. But they're larger metro areas, have a lot more people, a lot more businesses and so on. So we wanted to compare ourselves to the larger metro areas that are near us. Again, we were outperforming them, you know, not in terms of size, but in terms of growth. You can listen to Jebaraj wherever you get your podcasts or by going to arkansasresearch.uark.edu, the home of research and economic development news at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday as we again listen to some of our favorite conversations from 2023. It's one of life's inevitabilities. It's actually the one inevitability, death. Handling the end of life for ourselves or for a loved one can be different for each of us. Allison Nail Malone is a guide for people dealing with an end-of-life matter, an end-of-life doula. This spring, we invited Allison to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about her work. We don't do any medical unless that death doula is like an RN or has been a medical professional. So we're talking um, sort of emotional help, spiritual mm -hmm. help, things like that. Yeah, yeah, the emotional, spiritual, mental, sometimes physical too, because it can be a companion role up until the point of death. Um, it's a planner role where we'll sit with the family and or the individual and talk about what are their end of life wishes, their planning, also legacy planning. So what is it that they want to leave behind for their family or their community, that sort of thing. I'm glad you brought up legacy planning because when I 
went to the website, which is? MyMysteria.com. When I went there, I, I saw the tab about legacy planning. And this, I, I think a lot of us think when we think of death and legacy, it's it's financial, but that's not necessarily legacy planning. No, no. It, it, that's certainly a component of it. But I'll give you a great example. A former client of mine was a single mother who had three children under the age of 16 and has a term, had a terminal illness. And so... She wanted to make sure that when each child had a milestone in their life, that she would be there with them. So she created a video like blog. She created it. We created a, a scrapbook journal so that it had pictures and sayings and advice, and that there could be times when they just miss her that they could play, you know, her voice. Or she loved to sing songs, so she would sing certain songs on recording so that they can come back to that. What was that experience like? Because I can't imagine having a terminal illness and know that you have three minor children mm-hmm. who won't have their mother, and she was a single mom. Yeah. What was the experience like for you and to the best of your ability to remember for her when you were creating these legacy items? I mean, it, it is definitely heart-moving. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, like, how can you separate yourself from the emotion of it? And I don't. Um, and so, one, being able to be a part is such an honor. It's a sacred place to sit with her and to have these conversations with her. And it was very difficult for her. I mean, as you shared and mentioned, like, there's these th- three young ones that are going to, she knows are going to be without her. I think the other piece that made it a little bit easier is that there was a community of people around the children, around her and her family, so that they could all come together. So we also tried to make this a community gathering so that the children knew that there was the support of people physically there once she passed. There can be instances where you know the end of life is coming for you or a loved one. Mm-hmm. But there are also sudden deaths. Mm-hmm. Can can you have a role in helping people after a death that was unexpected? Absolutely. A lot of end-of-life doulas also, like myself, uh, help families and individuals navigate the grief. So there's the anticipatory grief. So that's the grief that comes before the death event. If it's a, um, a death that is sudden, then there's all these decisions that have to be made, um, all these conversations that have to be had, plus also navigating their grief. And so an end-of-life doula would be fantastic to come in and support them. They don't take the place of a counselor. But many of them do, like I do, is coaching them through that and also getting them in touch with their resources. Because again, very similar to when my dad passed at the end, I just like I couldn't think of all the decisions to make. And so um, had I had a doula there with me, it would have made it so much easier so that I could be present for my grief. And the people around me that were grieving, um, because I had someone there that was a little bit more objective, and they could help navigate with me. Right. I, there are so many decisions that have to be made pretty quickly, yes. whether it's a funeral service mm-hmm. or helping a, a widow or a widower with Social Security or things like that, yep. that, that it is – you've got to be of two minds. Mm-hmm. You're sad, but – it's also Tuesday and you have to go to the Social Security <laughs> office, right? I have to go buy groceries right. and I have to do these life event things. And a death doula can really be help, be a support for that. And to also just even help run some of those errands or um, who could we also reach out to to delegate some of these tasks to and, and be a mediator for that person that is experiencing that, that, 
that deep grief. How did you find this <laughs> to become a death doula? Yeah, so my background is 20 plus years in human resources, executive leadership and coaching. So to a certain extent, a somewhat of a transition, very similar transition of supporting people and being present for people. But I didn't even know this was a career, like an option for me. Like many people um, during COVID, I lost my my father. So in July of 2020, my dad died from complications of uh, COVID and some of the other illnesses that he faced. And during that time, for most people, because of COVID, and we didn't know what all that entailed, most of the time he was by himself and he was alone. And it wasn't until he was in hospice that I could spend time with him. And majority of hospice facilities have a program called No One Dies Alone or NODA. At COVID, during COVID, mm. they didn't, they couldn't do that. They just simply could not. Correct. And so, um, you know, my dad went through hospice and about two days later after being released from hospice, he had a rally then meaning he like he his color came back he was coherent they took him off of hospice which was normal and then 2 days later he died and i don't i feel like somewhat to a certain extent it was kind of divine planning because after about 6 months of like navigating grief and you know trying to figure out what do i do next this thing kept popping up in my email about being a death doula and I'm not even sure how it happened, to be honest with you. And I thought, well, I'm an external processor when it comes to healing and like figuring out problems and education. So I thought, at the very least, maybe this will help me f- figure out what I need to know, what I didn't need, that I didn't need to know, or that I didn't know. And that, you know, there's many of, there's many people like me who are kind of of that sandwich generation. So um, people between like their late 30s to mid 50s who are caring both for children and for parents or aging folks. Um, And I knew that if I could just be a resource to someone else, like that was worth it. And the more that I get into the education and the case studies and working with families to get certified, the more I felt like, wow, this is like the next evolution of the work I do on this earth. I would imagine, on one hand, you're dealing with something that's universal. Mm -hmm. None of us will escape death. But on the other hand, we all, every death is different. Every family is different. Every person grieves differently. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there's both this universality and this complete originality to every client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every, and I think that's part of what I love about it too, is um, one, I don't know what to expect every time. And each person's experience is so different. Um, There's some people who are ready, who are good to go. And then some, we have to have the difficult conversations with the family members or the family members actually has to have the conversation with the person that's done. You know, every, every situation is, is unique in the fact of like the mindset of what we do or don't do, um, even like from a spiritual or non-spiritual perspective, like how do we find meaning in that death as well? And I think, you know, we talk, there's a lot of talk about the quote stages of grief, which mm-hmm. is not, it's phases of grief. And so part of that doulas experience is to come in and talk about like, while your unique, your experience is unique, we all have grief. We all have these different phases and waves of grief that we experience. And so like that education is so important. A person can think they're not grieving correctly or <laughs> yeah. enough or yeah. outwardly, you know, 
expressing enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can really, when you go through the death of a very close one, you think, am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. Which sounds odd. Yeah. Well, as a society, we don't do death and grief very well. Um, and it's something that we have avoided. And um, there's there's so much education that's out there. It's so overwhelming. And we are a society that doesn't like to talk about that kind of vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, such as grief. How does it work when someone contacts you? Mm-hmm. I, now, it could be the person who is nearing the end of their own life. It could be a family member. It could be a caregiver, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a standard? Do you ask questions? How do you, how do you, what's that initial client meeting like? Yeah. So it, yeah, it can be any one of those individuals. Majority of the time, it's usually the family of the um, dying person. Um, however, so we just kind of first talk about what, is the illness? What you know? What is the medical care team? What's your um, care team look like? Many of the times, hospice is already involved or has already started to have the conversation, which is usually the first thing that I recommend is go talk to your hospice folks first, um, and then from there we just talk about what is it that you need as the individual who's dying. Like, what kind of support do you need? Sometimes they have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of give a little education of, you know, here's how I can support you. How does that sound? With the caregiver and or family, which tends to sometimes be one in the same, we just talk about what do you need in order for you to care for yourself as well as care for the individual. Um, what, How do you envision support looking like? Um, if you could wave the magic wand and you had somebody available to you in time, resources, and energy – we're all available. What would that look like for someone to step in and to support you now and then, you know, within six months after the passing? It sounds like to me that you're making sure you are not ever, as you mentioned, you're not medical. You're not helping with that. Mm-hmm. You're, you you encourage to talk to hospice first. You're not trying to take anyone's place. Correct. You're there as an additional resource. Yeah, we fill in, we fill in the gaps. Um, you know, with hospice, they're only given so much time, and they only have so many people <laughs> to do like to be a support, even from a volunteer basis. I've volunteered for two years with uh, local hospice, and we're always looking for volunteers um, because there's just there's the demand is so much greater than what's available, and the doula comes in and fills in the gap between all of that. We can be readily available, whereas not all the time can a hospice nurse or their care team are able to do that. They also don't have the capacity to be able to sit down with the families and really take the time to create those legacy projects, to talk, to have like mediation conversations of like one client I had, you know, he wanted to make sure that his um Daughter, that he could have the conversations with his daughters that he'd been meaning to have for 10, 15 years. And so here I can come in and be the liaison and create a safe space for those, you know, three individuals to have a conversations. And so our role is to fill in the gaps and provide support while encouraging all the other resources available to that person. The name of your firm is? Mysteria. Where did it come from? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
So the Spanish version, you know, like Spanish means misery. However, where it came from was actually there's a Greek goddess that her role was to come in and pour into the people who experience deep grief and loss. Mm. And so we kind of took the root word of those two things, and, and that's where Messeria came in from. I think a lot of us who've gone through the death of a close uh, – of a loved one might hear this and go, well – I'm not sure I had enough for the death doula to do. Maybe all I wanted to do was talk one time. Mm -hmm. Is that something you might? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I have found with end-of-life doulas is that there's a serv- there's a heart of service. And so, yeah, maybe it's just I want to have a conversation about what is it that I need to do? What are the questions I need to ask? Um, so, you know, sometimes those are complementary. Sometimes it, there is a cost to it. Um, but I feel like that initial conversation oftentimes is enough to say maybe I don't need one right now, but maybe one in the future. Have you thought any differently about mortality, specifically your own mortality (laughs) since taking this on? Yes. Yeah. I have found, one, uh, my self-care has had to double. Mm. So I've had to ensure that self-care is primary, where in my previous career life, that was just not, like, it was way down at the bottom of the I thought you were in HR. I would think that that would have meant a lot of self-care. Well, you'd you'd think so, because we would preach that, but... Okay. All right. (laughs) Not so much the case. Yes. Um, so one is that self care, and two, I have I have discovered both through the death of my dad and through this work, who my people are, and um, how do I how do I want to spend my time? And so part of what I have really loved about this work is that I get to do that. I get to make the choice to do that, um, and. I find myself not caring as much about things that used to be so important as well. Um, And I've slowed down and I've really enjoyed like, I mean, just simple things like today, taking a walk while it's even cold outside, but I'm enjoying the way the cold feels on my skin, the way the sun feels on my body. And prior to that, that might not be something I would just consciously make an effort to do. Allison Nail Malone is a death doula. That interview first aired on Ozarks at Large in March. Ozarks at Large is a production. 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville, and KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks so much for being with us. Another collection of some of our favorite pieces and interviews on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown. Performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org.